Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, listen, we're going to do our weekly political roundup with former Toronto Star journalist Richard Brennan. Russian air attacks continue in Ukraine. What are the consequences of that? And sports betting industry continues to thrive here in Ontario, but not nearly as well as online casinos in the province. Steve McAllister, editor-in-chief of Gaming News Canada, will join us and talk about that. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The Paul Bernardo situation, uh, which caused the, a great deal of ire. Uh, we've heard about a number of different uh, perspectives on this. Bernardo, of course, was transferred to a, what they call a medium security jail uh, not too long ago. Uh, nobody knew about it until after it happened. Uh, we are told uh, that the Prime Minister and, uh, and of course, Marco Mendicino, the minister in charge of that portfolio, also did not know about that. Now, some people are taking exception to that and saying, look, I'm not so sure that's the case, but uh, that's their story. And uh, you've seen the outrage. Uh, we've talked about it on this program and other programs uh, have brought this subject up as well. And the general consensus seems to be he should have stayed in maximum security. Uh, he's, of course, the, the one who was found guilty of, of murdering uh, Leslie French and uh, Leslie Mahaffey, I'm sorry, Kristen French, and and of course uh, Carla Mocha's little sister, uh, he was responsible for that as well. So and and I get the idea, I get that uh, the whole concept about let's just you know lock him up and throw away the key. Uh, but as we've come to know, and much to our disappointment, I guess with some of us anyway, uh, that's not how justice systems work. Uh, they might have done it that one time, but not now, and it's a different situation altogether. Uh, and yesterday. The uh, the Corrections uh, Service Canada Commissioner uh, had to weigh in on this. They had a press conference. They say they have done extensive uh, uh, investigations on exactly how this happened, why this happened, and whether or not this actually fit with the protocol and the procedure that's happening. And uh, the the minister, the commissioner in charge of this, uh, one Ann Kelly, uh, says in a review that the decision was made to transfer him out of maximum security institutions was what she called sound. That was the... the the descriptor that she used for this, and it followed all the applicable laws and policies. Here's what Ann Kelly had to say. The review committee concluded that the decisions to reclassify this inmate to medium security and transfer him to La Macaza Institution were sound and followed all applicable laws and policies. It also concluded that we followed applicable laws and policies regarding victim notification. Uh, nobody seems to be happy with that sort of an explanation. I'm going to use that as a start-off point for our first guest. He is Richard Brennan, former journalist with the Toronto Star who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill uh, for many, many years. Uh, Badger, great to have you back. Boy, it's been a busy week, and we got a lot of ground to cover. Uh, what's, what's your read on what's going on with the Bernardo situation? I mean, those of us that covered it back in the day uh, when he was finally convicted, he and Carla Homolke, uh, of course, of, of those heinous crimes, uh, it's it's something you 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 can't wipe it out of your mind. It's there forever, and and this story this uh, past week about the transfer uh, really just kind of rekindled uh, the the gut wrenching feelings I guess most of us had. Well, Bill, I mean, he Bernardo wasn't only convicted in the courts; he was convicted in the court of public opinion many years ago, and he sure he might have ticked all the boxes. Uh, He's a psycho anyway, so he, he might have ticked all the boxes and fooled everybody in, in, in you know, the federal penitentiary system and said, yeah, I can go to a minimum security uh, jail. But that's not the point. You know, he may have 
he may have all done all the right things, but the public want that guy locked up in maximum security for the rest of his life. That's it. They will not accept anything less than that. And, and, and nor, quite frankly, nor should he get anything less than that. And to suggest that, you know, the federal government says, oh, every, oh, everything was done properly, absolutely hogwash. Who cares? The thing is that the guy should be back in maximum security prison, not a minimum or medium security prison, because he's a bad dude and people passed judgment on him a long time ago. And to think the government is so you know, naive to believe that this is somehow going to sell is it just it's insane. Well, and and the the background story here, I I think, is what bothers an awful lot of people. Uh, you know, the prime minister says he found out about it. I guess it was the day it happened or something like that. And Mark or uh, Mendicino, the minister in charge of this thing, uh, who's uh, fumbled a few things over the last couple of months. We'll talk about that with the cabinet shuffle discussion in a second. Also says he didn't know about it. Uh, you would think in, in, the common sense would prevail here, and in, in a, a decision of this magnitude, knowing who uh, Paul, Paul Bernardo and knowing how the public could feel, there should have been some discussion about this. But apparently, you know, they didn't tell anybody. Uh, and, and we also found out, of course, from some of the work that uh, Global News has uncovered, uh, that it would, they were directed not to talk to anybody about it because they knew that, you know, what was going to hit the fan, and it certainly has. And, Bill, they told the families of the two dead girls the day before he was being transferred. So right away, they knew they were doing something wrong by, by taking that approach. The whole thing is a mess. Amanda Chino, I mean, the, the guy could play for the Ticats right now. He's fumbling so much. <laughs> but he, you know, to suggest that he didn't know is uh, it's, it's beyond the pale. I mean, I, I don't think there's a Canadian who believes that for one second or that that everything is just hunky dory and he, he's able to do that. He's able to be moved from one prison to the next. The whole thing is just it, it's another typical liberal mess, quite frankly, where they can take. Uh, you know, an anthill and turn it into a mountain, you know, quicker than you can say Jack Robinson. Everything they touched recently just seems to be, a, you know, a disastrous public handling of whatever issue it might be. In this case, it was Paul Bernardo being transferred. I can remember a, a similar incident. I think it was with Clifford Olson. Uh, at one point, and uh, the fact that he was being transferred, and the, it's it's applicable. I just got an email here from one of our listeners, Alexis, uh, that says, I'm offended by this as much as anybody, but we all need to keep in mind that he will never be released. Uh, and she's right. But the concern here is, why was this even considered? We were told the day he was sentenced, and in subsequent times, of course, because there have been assessments, etc., that this guy cannot be rehabilitated. So what was the sense in even sending to a place that apparently uh, has experts that can deal with, the, with well, sexual perverts like he was and is? Why? Why bother? Because they already said it's not going to be successful. Why did they have to move him at all? Well, and that's just how out of touch, Bill, that not only the, the politicians involved here, but also the, the bureaucrats that are handling this. Did they not think for one second there would be a huge public backlash against this? 
if if they didn't, then I don't know what they're doing in the job. People want that guy locked up in a maximum security prison for the rest of his life. End of story. They won't be Canadians won't be satisfied for any with anything less. This guy showed showed the public showed the world what he's made of, and they and he should be treated accordingly. And if you if there's a public opinion poll bill done tomorrow on this, that it would be heavily weighted in have him staying in a maximum security prison. I can guarantee you that. And and again, Ann Kelly's explanation for this just as you said does not hold water. Uh, in other words, he checked all the boxes. Well, so what? In other, in other words, somebody pulled out a form someplace and said, here, if you qualify for this, uh, you can go to a medium security. Uh, th- apparently, he's integrated with the prison population now. And they feel that if – this is one of the things. I saw this – I forget which paper I read this in yesterday. It's one of the, the, the Corrections Canada people said, well, if he escapes, he's not going to be a danger to society. What do you mean if he escapes? <laughs> and, <laughs> oh, he won't be a danger to society. I mean, I'm, I'm not you – know, I'm not trying to be flippant because this is a, a very serious situation. He killed three girls. What do yeah. you mean he's not going to be a danger? That was not a, that was not accidental. It was not manslaughter. He murdered them. Of course, he's going to be a danger to society. Well, it, I had Bill. I had to get a kick out of that too. I read about that he's now beginning to integrate into the prison society. Well, I'm sure many of the prisoners there and the maximum security and the and the medium security would not want anything to do with him quite frankly uh it's it's just the whole thing is just bizarre you know that he he's a he's a good boy now and he's he's making friends in the prisons well whoop de do well we're glad that he's probably in the euchre club now that's good for him yeah. Uh, quickly though, we got a few minutes left, but I, I, as I mentioned, I want to tie this into uh, the other story we heard this week politically anyway, uh, that apparently the prime minister is going to announce a cabinet shuffle. They say, uh, before the, uh, the August, uh, you know, civic holiday weekend, which is a couple of weeks from, uh, from now, uh, I don't know who's going and who's staying. Uh, you got to figure some of the key people like, uh, uh, the finance minister certainly. And, and some of the people that have been lifelong friends like Dominic LeBlanc. I mean, those guys grew up together. He'll stay. But Mendocino himself has got to be a dead man walking politically these days. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. He might, he might as well, uh, he might as well be packing up his desk quite frankly. He'll be gone. You said the major players, you know, finance, uh, defense and, uh, and other senior posts, I think, will remain the same. But there will be changes. But, Bill, this is like putting lipstick on a pig. This, you know, this they've got problems way beyond the fact that Mendocino has fumbled. People are tired of this government. They have to put a new face on it, I understand. But is it going to be any different? I mean, the best thing they've got going for them right now is Pierre Polyev. Because yeah. he's not he, he's not selling with the public generally. He sure he's he's a he's got the red meat folks, but other than that, he, he's just not cutting it. And that's that's what you know. If they get back in, and they only get back in with the help of the uh, with the help of the NDP, I can guarantee that. But the fact is that they if they they might well get back in and it'll be one person responsible for that. And that'll, that'll be Pierre Polyev and they'll be aided and embedded by uh, Mr. Singh, who will 
prop up the government once again, and it'll be a minority. Well, uh, the conservatives, I guess, are, are putting all their money on the fact that they've done the makeover for Polyev right now. You know, he's ditched the glasses. Uh, he's he's looking like he's trying to be Miami Vice all over again, you know, with the T-shirts and the the poor-fitting, uh, you know, uh, sports cut jackets that are going. Heather Malik wrote an interesting piece about that since Brown Star today, by the way. Uh, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, I would think. Uh, but the essence of what she was saying is, uh, you know, to use your same analogy, uh, people aren't buying it. It's still Pierre Paulia behind that, and uh, and they know what he's all about now. And so we'll see. I, I, but it's it's going to be personality uh, that I think is going to be a key player in this next election, whenever that's going to be. Uh, I got a minute left very quickly, although I'm going to ask you, from all your experience in, in covering provincial and federal politics, uh, every time there's a cabinet shuffle, especially with the minority government, uh, the, the first rumor that runs up the flagpole here is, ah, he's going to call an election in the fall. Do you think so? I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet against it. Uh, if he if he has any kind of bounce back with a cabinet shuffle, which Bill and I you you and I follow this, and maybe a one point one zero point zero one percent of the population follow a cabinet shuffle, but the point if he, he does get bounce back and, and and people are saying yeah this is a new improved uh, Trudeau government, he may well call he may well pull the plug and take advantage of that, and you can bet prior to that, that there's going to be all kinds of money thrown out here, there, and everywhere, and programs announced, et cetera, et cetera, which the liberals love to announce programs. Do they follow through on them? Not Sometimes not. I'm still waiting for the two million trees to be planted. But yeah, it, 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 it could be a reality. It really, it really could. Well, we'll see. Uh, you know, the, the summertime and the where the appearances are going to be and what he says, I guess, are going to be an indicator. Uh, we got to run. A busy, busy day today, and always a pleasure to get your perspective on this. Richard Brennan, former journalist with The Star and uh, covering Queen's Park and Parliament Hill. Have a good weekend, Badger. We'll talk later. Hey, Bill. Okay, when we come back after a short time out here, uh, <laughs> the Wall Street Journal asks an interesting question. Uh, does Canada even belong in the G7? It's an editorial that was there just a little while ago. We're going to talk about that in just a couple of seconds. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We want to focus on uh, some very troubling news uh, out of Ukraine. 18 months into this war now, Russia's uh, military is, seems to be pounding, uh, not not necessarily the Ukraine soldiers, but we're talking about Ukraine cities. They've ratcheted up attacks targeting uh, port cities for the third night in a row, leaving both civilian and critical infrastructure damaged, dozens injured, and at least three people dead. Global's Reggie Cicchini has the latest. A barrage of missiles rained down on southern Ukraine early Thursday, injuring 19 people in the city of Nikolaev, including five children. How long will they torture us? It's the seventh time the downtown has been targeted, this resident says. It's a question those living in the battered port city of Odessa are also asking. After another unrelenting assault from long-range supersonic missiles and Iranian-made drones. Russia says this is eye for an eye, following a Ukrainian attack on a bridge to annexed Crimea. But argues non-critical infrastructure is not being targeted. It's simply a lie. The destruction of civilian infrastructure may constitute violations of international humanitarian law. Reggie Chikini, Global News. 
Let's uh, bring uh, Elliot Tepper into the conversation here. Elliot, of course, is an emeritus professor of political science at Carleton University who has uh, been studying, well, since day one, I guess, of the, this invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Elliot, great to have you back. Uh, I wish we had happier things to talk about, but this has been a, a hell of a week for the citizens in these towns, isn't it? Oh, yes. Thank you, Bill. Uh, this ongoing war crime, the crime of aggression, which is a war crime, uh, is continuing, and now we see that the uh, the port city of Odessa is being pounded, along with others across the uh, across Ukraine, as you pointed out. You have to wonder how much longer it's going to go on before there are going to be voices raised saying, "Why is Russia not paying a significant cost for this? It's not their hospitals that are being attacked; their critical infrastructure being attacked. Uh, yet they can get away with it with impunity in Ukraine." So Ukraine is paying a very, very high price for Putin's imperial ambitions and the world now as well because of the food insecurity and the weaponization of food that he's uh, engaged in uh, overnight, as we see. And let's connect some dots here, Elliot. I mean, you know, Russia is saying, uh, well, three days ago, they said there was no connection between the bridge being blown up and, and what's going on here. Now they're saying it's retribution for it. So uh, you take their explanation for what it's worth. Uh, but not only that, but I mean, some of the uh, these missiles that they're firing right now are aimed directly at the grain supplies in those cities. So in other words, they, they're basically trying to starve the Ukrainian people out of, uh, you know, it, it, they're doing everything in their power to try to, 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 you know, get these people to tell their own leadership, hey, enough is enough. We can't take this anymore. Uh, yet the Ukrainians are staying steadfast here and just they're, they're angry at the Russians, certainly. Uh, but I think they're going to be looking and saying, look, we, we, we're defenseless here. Uh, you know, what, what are we supposed to do? Yes, I think you've raised something very interesting. When is the call going to go up? Enough is enough. Uh, right now, the, the Russians are counting on, as you point out, the Ukrainian citizens to say enough is enough. Because, as you know, during uh, lead up to winter, they took out as much as they could of the power infrastructure so that Ukrainians would freeze in the dark. But um, now we have it the other way around, that the world is now recognizing the degree to which this, this massive war crime that Russia is committing is affecting a much wider swath. The weaponizing food, which is the way it's being put, by attacking Odessa, which is the main port. And, that's, and tomorrow, tomorrow is the one-year anniversary of the Black Sea Grain Initiative Bill. This was a deal worked out to allow very crucial grains to be... Uh, not just grains, but food oil as well, to be shipped out of Ukraine, as well as out of Russia. Russia got uh, something out of that deal as well. Now they are violating it by this massive attack on a civilian, uh, civilian port. The possibility arises this will even escalate further. We had the tiniest ripple effects of this. Our food prices are going to go up because of Russia's actions. Uh, it had gone down by 13%, I read, but now it's likely to go it's, it's already jumped 13% on the wheat futures. But overnight, uh, the fourth night of attack on, the, on this crucial port continued. And the entire purpose of it is to, is to basically threaten the world that we have to have our way or you're going to pay a cost. China uh, is, is one of the main buyers of the grain that was coming out. You know, one out of five, I just heard a figure, one out of every five tons that got shipped out of Odessa, went actually to China. But China's loss of that, and now they're saying, oh, we're going to expand our domestic production as a result. 
That's not going to affect the hundreds of millions in the UN Secretary General's estimate who will face starvation, particularly in the Horn of Africa, because of this uh, unilateral action by Russia. So is there going to be a, a NATO response to this? I, I mean, this is, uh, this is, it's, it's, it's unforgivable. I, I, we all, we all know that I'm trying to think of the right adjectives here, but I think, you know, we, we all get the intent of what's happening here. Uh, and, and, and again, you've got Zelensky that's saying, look at, you know, we need more weapons. We need more help. Uh, you know, we, we've got to be able to defend ourselves here, but how do you defend cities in situations like this, Elliot? Particularly some some of the missiles that are being fired now, the Onyx missile, the, uh, the Urex missile, sorry, is is uh, almost unstoppable by any any force. So, yeah, Russia is pounding its neighbor with everything they've got, uh, short of nuclear weapons, and that's still on the horizon potentially as well. The possibility exists that uh, the world is going to be losing patience with Ukraine for not making a major breakthrough after Ukraine has been pleading for the weapons that would allow them to make that breakthrough. And those weapons not yet uh, provided. They do not have the command of the air, which Ukraine points out, both NATO doctrine and American doctrine says in a war you have to have command of the air, but those F-16s aren't going to arrive until fall at the earliest. Uh, the missiles that are being knocked out of the sky by Patriots and other uh, anti-aircraft uh, devices are capturing a lot, but cannot capture the entire thrust of the sophisticated missile barrage, unending in unceasing missile barrage. The nature of the war right now, by the way, is that uh, what Ukraine is trying to do is to leap over those vast minefields and the dug-in trenches and the, and the traps for, for uh, mechanized weapons. They're trying to go over those behind them to attack the command and coordination, the ammunition dumps, and the troops that they can reach with the weapons, particularly the shadow, uh, storm shadow missiles that are being provided by the UK and also by France. But the US has a vast supply of even longer range missiles that could reach much deeper. So the Ukrainians are doing a lot with what they have. They're making incremental guides, uh, ground gains. But what they're saying is that destruction of material is equivalent to kilometers on the ground. Uh, we've heard another voice, a familiar voice, uh, for all the wrong reasons, of course. Uh, Prigozhin is back. Uh, we wondered what happened to him for a while. He's been cited a number of times, actually cited in Moscow, I guess, at one point. Uh, but he has uh, he's made a public statement now saying Russia's war in Ukraine is a disgrace. Uh, once again, uh, vilifying the Russian military leadership and, and Vladimir Putin, too. And we, we by the way, should uh, clarify that comment. He's he's not saying it's a disgrace that the Russians are fighting in Ukraine and invaded right. Ukraine. He, he's he's saying it's a disgrace the way they're fighting. In other words, he would have done differently and and he would have won the war a long time ago. So this is still a bad guy. Okay, even though you know he he, he is an enemy of Putin right now, he's an enemy of Ukraine at the same time. Uh, but he's not going away anytime soon. Apparently, we don't know where he's going to go. The Right now, apparently he's in Belarus, but there's talk of him, as I suggested, uh, I think, to you a couple of weeks ago, he may possibly be sent off to Africa to look after Mr. Putin's very lucrative empire and activities in Africa. Uh, right now, we, we don't know really what's happening to Prigozhin, except that he is alive, he's well, uh, he's allowed to, allowed to wander around loose across the land. So he's still a, a factor. The Prigozhin story is a juicy story, but the details of it are totally unknown to us. All we can do is speculate that 
And I've been speculating that he probably has something like an insurance policy on Putin. He literally knows where the bodies are buried. He's been mm-hmm. the money, the bag man for Mr. Putin for a long time. It's hard to believe he didn't take out some um, precautions saying, you know, in case I'm ever turned against, I'll, I'll hurt you, Mr. Putin. So we don't know, except that this ruthless uh, warlord is going to continue to be a factor. Well, and there's going to be continued cries from Zelensky and others that uh, that NATO's got to step up here. And I know that, you know, they don't want to set one foot in there uh, because of the threats that Putin is making. Uh, but there are things going on. I mean, the, the bridge that was blown up a couple of weeks ago, which Russia is saying is, is the the, the provocation for what's going on now. Uh, uh, some drone attacks uh, in the Kremlin in the last little while. Uh, Ukraine has essentially said that we have nothing to do with that. Uh, do you take them at their word? Because you know, uh, you've told us before uh, that we know that there are insurgents within Russia that like to see Putin out of there and not necessarily fighting on behalf of Ukraine uh, just, to, just to, to get rid of Putin. Well, on that bridge and, and perhaps the ferocity of the response right now, uh, that bridge wasn't destroyed. It was damaged. But that really is a crucial bridge in order to defend the Russian position in Crimea. And Putin clearly thinks Crimea itself may be threatened. There, were, uh, there was an attack on an ammunition dump there that went on and on. It, it triggered explosion after explosion after explosion. So there is a threat inside and to Crimea, which is essential uh, for Mr. Putin in his view. He can't afford to lose that without losing everything. So in, in the response, he's saying... He's ripping up this grain deal. But I think he was actually going to do that in any event, because any leverage, any pressure points he can bring to bear. uh, And again, with near impunity, uh, he's now saying, since you mentioned NATO, he's now saying that any ship that enters uh, that port could be considered carrying military weapons. And therefore, the Russians can attack any flagged ship, no matter the flag it's carrying, if it goes into, uh, into the Black Sea. And Ukraine has just announced, well, we can say the same thing about Russian ships. So the possibility of a a real tense buildup, and this could be a real test case for the West and for NATO. How are you going to handle the closing off of what has been basically an international waterway under Turkey's protection? It's a long, complicated story. Turkey has a role to play here. China has a role to play here. But there's a buildup of possibility of, you know, why not escort those ships out? with NATO ships, and, and uh, will, will Russia then attack them? So a flashpoint is building up over this. But right now, we have to remind ourselves it's a humanitarian crisis as well. Well, exactly. And, and you know, it's not unlike what China's doing, of course, with uh, the, South, the South China Sea and the South Pacific as well. Uh, as you've mentioned, uh, the, the commonality here was that these were supposed to be international waters, uh, and Putin is saying, no, that, that's ours. That's 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 our area. That's not yours. It's not for them to, they can go through there with our permission, and we're not giving you that permission. Uh, at some point, NATO has to respond. Well, NATO has made it clear they will defend every inch of NATO territory, <laughs> uh, but uh, they're not going to put boots on the ground, and as you and I have talked about many times, they're not going to put boots on the ground in Ukraine. Ukraine is fighting this war alone, with the international support that it does have, which is extensive, but short of the kind of weapons it needs in order to make the dramatic breakthrough to really begin to drive Russia out of Ukraine. Uh, They don't have the wherewithal to do that at the moment. We hear stories about uh, the strategy here by uh, Ukraine is starve, stretch, and strike. They're trying to starve out the supply, the command and uh, coordination. They're trying to disrupt behind enemy lines they're trying to, to uh, disrupt 
the resupply of troops to starve them out. Then they want to stretch them out all along that very long border. And then when they find a weak spot, they'll strike. And that's what's going on right now. And, and on the ground, I mean, we've, you know, we've talked about, you know, the Ukraine's advances and they've retaken a, a, a fair bit of territory uh, that they had lost earlier in the war. Uh, that seems to be page two now. It's not on the front page. Is that, is that starting to, to, to die off or are they still being effective? Huh. Well, the key gamble by Mr. Putin right now is that there will be Ukraine fatigue, war fatigue, and it will fade to, you know, page two and that out of consciousness. And then he can slowly dismember NATO, uh, taking advantage of the internal contradictions and that. And he's, and he has the means, uh, to help enhance dissension across Europe and within NATO. We know that they've got cyber and misinformation and so forth. So the, the big gamble right now is, will our patience and our ability to suffer out, uh, outlast his? So he's saying, no, well, I'll just hang in here and you'll get tired of it and we'll win this war because of war fatigue. What just happened at NATO, uh, as we know, was a G7 separate communique, but under G7's name, auspices, saying, no, we have a long-term commitment. We, the G7, have a long-term commitment, all of us being NATO members, uh, to Ukraine. You will not outlast us, Mr. Putin. If you're gambling that war fatigue is going to win the war for you, it won't. Elliot Tepper, uh, as always, Elliot, thank you so much for this. Uh, have a great weekend. We'll talk again soon. Oh, thank you, Bill. Elliot Tepper, of course, uh, from Carleton University, who's been studying uh, this uh, for the longest time. And it, it's awfully frustrating. You know, the, you, you get some communiques that the, the Ukrainians seem to be making advances with their counteroffensive. And, and then, of course, uh, it's, it's, it's the air. I mean, it's the missiles and it's the, it's the air war uh, where Russia continues to dominate. And I, 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 our hearts go out, of course, to the people in these cities that are wondering just, uh, you know, whether the next missile is going to land. Uh, it's it's incomprehensible for us on, on this side of the ocean to actually you know know that that's going on in cities that uh, friends and relatives are living in, but it is on a daily basis. Uh, and we're going to follow up on those stories too in, in the uh, days ahead on this program. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're going to talk football. Ticats, of course, we're going to be playing at Tim Horton Field tonight against the, the hated Argos. Uh, if uh, you want to put a, a, a wager on that, well, you probably want to talk about the guys that we're going to be talking about in just a second here. And those are the folks that are into the Ontario sport betting industry. Uh, it's going very well. Thank you very much. We talk about businesses and industries that are uh, prospering these days. Uh, it took an awfully long time for, for the Ontario government to step forward and say, oh, we're going to make this happen, but they have. Uh, and everybody seems to be doing just well on that. Uh, the as a matter of fact, uh, it looks now as if the uh, sports betting industry had $2 billion that's with a B, $2 billion in revenue in the first quarter of this year. Joining us to talk about this is Steve McAllister. Steve is the editor-in-chief of Gaming News Canada. Uh, hi, Steve. How are you doing these days? Hey, good morning, Bill. Great to be back with you. It's great to have you back here, and it's great to see this industry is uh, not just thriving, but just going gangbusters on this. Uh, and, and by the way, just as we get into some of these numbers, I just want to remind our listeners uh, that these monies that we're talking about here, these substantial wages that are being made, uh, you know, before this was legalized, that, that money was still going out there, but it was usually going out of the country. This is this is a good news story for the, for the country and for the province, isn't it? It, it really is, Bill. And the other layer to these latest uh, numbers from iGaming Ontario as well is that they don't include the Ontario lottery and gaming numbers. And um, it's expected uh, OLG did about $511 million in, in gaming revenue in their 2021-22 annual report. 
and they're expecting a healthy increase in those numbers in the uh, in their next fiscal year. So, as you say, it it is a good news story for for the province. Uh, why so so well? I mean, you'd think in tough times people would say, "Well, maybe not." I, I, I mean, I talk to the people who do this on a regular basis with some of my friends, and they just say it's fun. It, it adds to the excitement of the game. It just it gives it a, a, a whole different perspective, and and uh, and and they just love doing this. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's it's emerged as a form of entertainment, Bill. Um, you know, ten years ago when I was working in the sports media business, we talked about the second screen experience back then being watching a, a hockey game or a tie cats game on television and, and following the game on Twitter as well. Uh, that second screen experience now for a lot of people is, is watching a game and then also placing a bet while the, uh, while the game's going on. And also point out too, the online casino and these latest numbers from my gaming Ontario for the April to, to June period, uh, about 80% of that money is coming from people playing online casino and, and poker. It's about uh, it's over 12, $12 billion in wagers placed. Uh, that's got to be part of the success story, though, isn't it, really, Steve? I mean, th- there are options now for for people that want to place wagers. Uh, it's not just winning and losing. There's so many different things you can do right now. Yeah, and I think again, uh, the message you get from the operators a lot, Bill, and there, and there are 46 of them now in, in Ontario in this open market, is that uh, they do place uh, they do place um, a priority on on responsible gambling. They they don't want to lose customers and. You know, for someone like myself, I mean, I, I'm a I'm a two dollar and five dollar better. I, I placed a couple of bets on the uh, the Women's World Cup game with Canada last night. Uh, I've got a couple of bets on the British Open golf tournament this weekend. And I think if you uh, you know if you don't get get crazy and you do it re- do it responsibly, it can be fun. And it's no different than people who decide to buy tickets to a to a CFL game or or a concert or or to go out to go out to a nice restaurant for dinner. Well, you and I have talked about that in the past because I know there are some people who just you know think that you know it's 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 one of the you know you shouldn't have alcohol or you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't gamble for heaven's sake. You know that uh, it can be fun and it is fun for an awful lot of people. Uh, but you know you've got to manage your expectations, don't you? I mean, if, if you're doing this because you want to win that big payday and you know and retire and go buy an island someplace, uh, that's probably not going to happen for you. Uh, but it, as you say, because I'm the same as you, I'm a two five dollar guy, you know that that sort of thing, uh, and it, just to have a good time, you know. And if we win a couple of bucks out of it, that's all the better. Yeah, you know what, Bill? I was I was golfing up here in King Carden last night with uh, with a former work colleague of me of mine, and he was asking me about this industry. And then one thing he said, he says I I've got an addictive personality, so I I don't bet uh, I don't bet on sports, and whenever I I see or hear a sports book ad. I, I fast forward my phone or I or turn away from the TV, and so that's part of again is people realizing that they might be susceptible to to gambling too much. Um, uh, you know that can translate in, in going to a casino or buying lottery tickets or, as you mentioned earlier, uh, drinking too much alcohol. And that's why this industry is, from what I can see in the two years I've covered it, Bill, they've, they, uh, they work pretty hard at trying to, trying to make sure and, and that uh, people do gamble responsibly. Well, and that's the thing that's, I think, impressed an awful lot of people that might have been skeptical when the Ontario government was saying that they were going to try to make this happen. Uh, is is the the dedication that the people in the industry have uh, towards making first of all a pleasurable experience, but at the same time uh, ensuring that it doesn't become an obsession for some people. I mean, they they, they know where to draw the line, and and uh, they do it with the best of intentions. And I, I think it's really changed a lot of people's minds about about the, the way this industry is actually operated. 
Yeah, some of the, you know, the, the, this industry continues to evolve. Bill, for example, in, in British Columbia this summer, the lottery corporation there, they they put in more stringent restrictions so that when people go to a casino, they've got they've got to show proof of ID, and then they can uh, they can take that ID and see if that person has spent too much money or if there are red flags there. Uh, one project that iGaming Ontario is working on right now is is coming up with essentially a central registry system. So if um, you know someone who's maybe bet too much with one on one app, uh, that's that's something that is flagged with uh, with all the operators in Ontario, and so they know that they can you know they can put rail, guardrails in place that won't allow that person to bet and and to help protect that person from themselves. Well, and and the the industry I think does a pretty decent job of policing themselves, and I think that's that's one of the things that uh, is reflective in some of these too. Uh, the numbers, though, as I say, what you want to hear is growth, and I think we, we talked about that in the past, Steve. You know, when they when it was first legalized and they okay, we're up and running, it looked great, and that, but there's always that concern that okay, that's just you know people are trying it out and seeing now, uh, but it might fizzle out, and it, apparently it's it's going in the opposite direction. Uh, the numbers are getting better and better every time. I think as more people figure that uh, hey, let's give this a shot, and uh, and having a, a great time with it, and uh, it's it's something that we've been waiting for for the longest time. As I was looking at some of these numbers this morning, Steve, I got back to thinking about. The times we had people like Sandy Hawley on and others that were advocating for for the legalization of this and some flexibility within the industry, uh, and the government finally got the message, I guess, and and it's it's been a good news story for an awful lot of people. Yeah, in this quarter, Bill, like the Ontario, we've seen five hundred forty-five million dollars in total gaming revenue. I, I you know I, I think it would be wise for for the Doug Ford government to be transparent and, and let Ontarians know how they how they are spending that that money that's, that they're seeing from from the gambling industry because as you mentioned off the top, it, it is a good news story. And we know that this province has some serious issues right now, including in, in your own backyard. So uh, this is money that can go to help uh, help create programs around healthcare and education and, and housing and and you know those priorities with Ontarians right now. Yeah, I, a little more information about that would be good news, especially because you wonder uh, when you hear some of the promises, where's the money coming from? Well, this is one of the revenue sources for them now, and that, that don't kid yourself. That was one of the motivations, I think, for them to move forward on this. Uh, continued good luck with this uh, and, and enjoy Kincardine. Uh, this is the time of year to be up there. Uh, oh, and just a quick last question. Uh, you mentioned you were laying a wager down. Who are you picking on the open? Uh, I, I did like uh, I did like Rory, uh, Bill, although he's having a tough uh, tough time today. I'm, I'm thinking, uh, uh, I don't know if he had a chance to follow the tournament this morning, but Brian Harmon had a, had a great day shot of 65. Yeah. 10, 10 under right now, which is almost unheard of at, at a at a British Open. So I'm thinking there are going to be a lot of us putting uh, putting you and I included putting a couple of bucks on Harmon to uh, to continue this through the weekend. Yeah, he looks uh, he looks pretty good at this stage. Uh, Rory, if Rory ever gets the putter going, he's going to be fine. But he, it wasn't working for him yesterday or today, was it? No, and you wonder if maybe you know that that great uh, great rally to win the Scottish Open last week. And the thing about professional golf right now, there's so many good golfers around the world. It just it is really difficult to win in back to back weeks. And and maybe uh, Rory's win came one one week too soon. <laughs> anyway, we'll take it. But that's uh, something else to watch for the weekend too. And you can have some fun with uh, the, the the wagering on that. Uh, enjoy the holiday, Steve. Thanks so much for the time. As always, and we'll talk again soon. Yeah, always great to join you, Bill. Thank you.
Take care. Steve McAllister, Editor-in-Chief of Gaming News Canada. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.